Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, as Valentine's Day approaches, I'm joined by Gina Kadby, a PhD in specialty cacao and craft chocolate. Together, we look at the history of chocolate in Japan and the recent growth of the country's craft chocolate scene. Gina Kadby, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you are the only person I know who has a PhD in chocolate. <laughs> you just <Great> . <laughs> completed your studies at Tokyo University. So how did you end up studying chocolate and the chocolate industry here in Japan? Well, my bachelor's and master's research background is in tropical plant and soil sciences. So basically agriculture and natural resources management. And I got my start in cacao while working in the beverage crops lab at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And the beverage crops lab was basically this dream come true. We researched coffee and chocolate and kava. And I feel like I was constantly buzzed on coffee and just covered in chocolate. It was amazing. <laughs> um, and I really just found the production process for cacao and chocolate quite interesting. In order to make chocolate, you need cacao beans, which are also called cocoa beans, and cacao trees are grown for their pods, which is the fruit of the cacao tree. And these pods have this dense outer rind. It almost looks like this oblong melon to protect this incredibly tasty, sweet, juicy fruit inside. Anyway, almost all of the chocolate that we eat is made by collecting these cacao seeds and their delicious pulp, fermenting that usually in this wooden box system and then drying the beans and undergoing the whole chocolate making process of roasting the beans, winnowing off the chaff, grinding, conching, and then finally tempering all of that into this consumer ready chocolate. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, <laughs> why not investigate this um, as a PhD? Because it, what a wonderful opportunity to research this amazing plant. <laughs> Absolutely. You've already made me incredibly jealous that you get to play with and study chocolate all day. So, <laughs> so chocolate has an incredibly long history. Uh, you know, it dates several millennia back to its origins in Central America, where it was consumed as a drink rather than as a bar. It was then brought to Europe, where it turned from chocolate drink to chocolate bar. But when did chocolate first arrive here in Japan? Yeah, so it does have this really interesting journey, right, from Mesoamerica to Japan. People often think that chocolate was first introduced to Japan by American GIs during the Second World War. You know, picture them handing out bars of chocolate to Japanese children, for, for example. But we had chocolate in Japan much earlier than that. It just、um, was much less accessible back then. There was, particularly in 1873, This historic two year voyage that embarked out of Yokohama, where these Japanese delegates tried chocolate for the first time in Paris. And this chocolate was likely in a bar form, probably、mm. made with sugar, which is this addition to the chocolate making process given to us by the Spanish and other European chocolate makers. The chocolate that was consumed over 4,000 years ago in Mesoamerica prior to this Europeanization was actually consumed as this. Bitter beverage and was not made with sugar. So, this group of post Meiji Restoration Japanese delegates discovers chocolate in the 1870s on a mission to Europe. But when was it first sold here? So, it was produced for, and sold for the first time in the late 1800s. And the late 1800s was this period of time when Japan was really opening up to the outside world. 
But even as new international foods became available, these imports were limited to pretty much those who could afford it. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing to consider here is that many businesses that were selling chocolate did not have the manufacturing equipment to produce chocolate locally. And they were operating as a small confectionery shop selling imported sweets. So there's this cost and volume barrier to overcome, right? So how did chocolate gain widespread popularity and start becoming something that was accessible to the general public? So there was one fellow, um, Mori Nagasan, who spent about 10 years in the US. He was very much this child of the revolution, if that makes sense. Um, And he learned about industrial processes and really embraced this concept of large-scale manufacturing. And when he brought this technology back to Japan, he set up a shop in Akasaka and invested in producing chocolate made in Japan. And up until then, the technology to produce cacao beans into cocoa powder wasn't available in Japan. And, you know, now that chocolate could be produced at volume and at at a much lower cost, it became more accessible to the common people. When it starts becoming more popular is, you know, the early 1900s. And basically this new manufacturing process and aggressive advertising campaigns kind of start to come into play focused on the health benefits of chocolate the industry really started to take off, I guess, around the early 1900s. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoy thinking about how mechanization and local production significantly changed the name of the game. And all of these new industrial players came into the market and were so competitive. So, for example, there was this marketing campaign that was done aimed at children where you could win this all-expense-paid international trip on this 18-day tour of India, Egypt, and Italy You know, just from buying chocolate. (laughs) So like golden ticket scenario. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I think the Fair Trade Commission eventually put a stop to these types of campaigns on behalf of the smaller businesses that couldn't compete. But it sounds like it was a really good time for the kids while it lasted, right? (laughs) So Japan had and still has its own tradition of sweets in the form of wagashi, which often accompany tea ceremony. So aside from the issues of cost associated with chocolate when it was first introduced to Japan, was it immediately popular here or were there other barriers to overcome in terms of its actual taste and general consumer acceptance? I would say at first, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is likely due to the primarily pescatarian-ish diet of Japanese people that was observed up until the major dietary changes that came with the Meiji Restoration. But Mm -hmm. basically the use of dairy was still not very acceptable in Japan, and it was kind of a difficult flavor to become accustomed to. So one of the terms that was used a lot to describe these products was batakusai, meaning something like kind of the foul or powerful odor of butter. (laughs) Mm, That's interesting. And um, I guess for wagashi... Many of these products were meant to complement tea, so they couldn't be too overpowering, and these chocolate products were often very overpowering. And so there's a little bit of a shift that had to happen there, right, with acceptance of these different flavor profiles, essentially. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And skipping forward a bit, I think chocolate is now by far the dominant form of confectionery that is consumed here in Japan, much more so than wagashi. So when did chocolate overtake wagashi in terms of popularity here? So around the 1960s, demand for the Western confectionery kind of usurped the local sweets or wagashi. And 
There was this concept that industrial production might also provide improved hygiene through the manufacturing process because it's not taking place in these, you know, you think of these small, dusty wagashi shops passing through potentially unwashed hands and chocolate just had this longer shelf life than wagashi. So in that sense, it was a little bit more seen as modern and hygienic and futuristic and healthy. Chocolate is now everywhere in Japan. Uh, I'm particularly partial to a box of chocolate macadamias. Uh, so when we zoom forward to 2021, what does Japan's chocolate market look like today? You know, it's growing. <laughs> um, there's Jap- Asia in general is a growing market and Japan within Asia is certainly growing. Within Japan, we have some major producers of chocolate, including Izaki and Meiji for sure. Godiva was one of the big international players early on in Japan and still is. I think Mary's Chocolate is still quite influential. Um, but in terms of, you know, when we think about the way that chocolate is moving and people being more interested in things like premium chocolate, for example, mm. um, these brands are starting to make their way into that marketplace. And yeah, consumption is certainly increasing. On that point, how much chocolate does the average person in Japan eat when compared to, say, the average European? It's still far less than the Europeans. So <laughs> the Europeans, we have about five kilograms per capita <laughs> being consumed. And in Japan, it's increasing. Back in 2008, it was around almost two kilos per person. And then, you know, in 2018, 2.19 kilos per person. Apparently, the consumption in Germany is quite high. I think somewhere around 11 kilos per capita. <laughs> mm, wow. I'm not sure where they find the time. <laughs> it just seems like a lot of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to know what my own consumption of chocolate is per year now. I'd be interested <laughs> to weigh it, actually. I think a large proportion of it would be Nutella, actually. <laughs> that sounds like a great way to... Yeah. <laughs> Cranky. So within the current chocolate scene, your research has focused in particular on the recent rapid growth of craft chocolate in Japan, uh, which we could consider the new frontier in Japan's relationship to chocolate. I think everyone's familiar with craft beer and craft coffee, but in general, what is craft chocolate? Okay, so similar to how we have, you know, specialty coffee within this big world of what most most people are consuming when we talk about coffee, we also have craft chocolate, which is a premium chocolate product made with a focus on high flavor attributes, the quality of the ingredients, and it's typically described by chocolate makers by the origin of the cacao beans or the production or processing methods. So Specialty cacao beans are what we use to make craft chocolate, and these beans are essentially higher quality beans with desirable flavor attributes that are meant to shine through when made into chocolate. So one thing to keep in mind here is that cacao beans are produced by millions of farmers around the world. Most Mm -hmm. of them are smallholder farmers that are living below the poverty line. So 
there are sustainability concerns when it comes to the production of cacao and, you know, livelihood issues. And, you know, Kraft Chocolate tries to address all of that in their production process as well. So one of the unique features about the Kraft Chocolate industry is that Kraft Chocolate makers will often seek out specialty cacao beans themselves to buy directly from the farmers or through this specialty distributor. This is quite different from the commodity cacao market in which the beans pass through many different hands and is sold through various intermediaries in this kind of volatile marketplace. Mm -hmm. Specialty cacao beans can also command this significantly higher price, which is paid directly to the farmers compared to this commodity cacao or even fair trade cacao market. So craft producers typically have a much more direct relationship with the farmers that they're sourcing cacao from. Yeah. And um, that kind of bleeds a little bit into this new, newer emerging idea of bean to bar chocolate. Um, and bean to bar chocolate essentially emphasizes the origin of these beans used to make chocolate. So the bean to bar movement in a way acknowledges that there's this long production chain that comes into play before we reach the final product, you know, before we can take beans and make them into a bar of chocolate. <laughs> and cacao farmers play a big role. I mean, they play this instrumental role in the production process, the cultivation of the trees, the harvesting, the fermenting, the drying. All of this happens at origin. And the concept of bean to bar is not only to acknowledge that, but also provides the chocolate makers this additional level of quality management when they're involved in that process. When did craft chocolate really start to take off in Japan then? So in Japan, it started taking off. I based on my research around 2014 and started peaking a little bit higher around 2016. So mm -hmm. in general, craft chocolate emerged in the late 1990s to 2000s, primarily out of the United States. And it's been making its way around the world to include Japan. And around 2014 is when it started to take off. And craft chocolate fits well within this kind of Japanese style of artisan local production of goods. So mm -hmm. if you analyze the dates when Japanese craft chocolate businesses were established, as well as, you know, the online search trends of what's happening in Japan related to this industry, it really started to take off around 2014. So it's really quite recent then. And do we know how many craft chocolate makers there are in Japan now? In Japan, it's estimated that there are around 100 Japanese craft chocolate makers. Now, this is based on me you know, analyzing the market and doing searches through industry partners and figuring out who has an online presence. So there might even be smaller businesses that are popping up that we don't know about, but this is our best guess is around 100 in Japan. And how would that compare to, say, the number of craft chocolate makers in Europe or the US where you were saying the scene really started to develop? It's still growing. So <laughs> if we compare it to, so for example, in the EU, which makes up over 40% of the market. Um, they're primarily in France and Italy. And the United States actually has the highest number of craft chocolate makers by single country, which is about 30% of the market. Mm -hmm. So in total, the total global market is estimated around 800. And so Japan is around 100. So you can kind of make a guess <laughs> on how big they are. But, you know, they're still um, making a dent there. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the craft chocolate makers here are really focusing on the core bean-to-bar type chocolate that you talked about earlier, using relatively limited ingredients, basically just sugar and cocoa. But I know you've written all about the 
various interesting local flavors that are being used in production and really pushing the flavor profile of Japanese chocolate into different directions and different avenues. So what are some of the flavors that you've tried or, you know, are aware of? Oh, I like this question. (laughs) So um, inclusion bars are basically chocolate bars that are flavored with ingredients other than just cacao and sugar. Japanese chocolate makers will incorporate these diverse local flavors such as Genmaicha, hojicha, matcha, or sake, or um, even shimizumori, which is red pepper, sancho, which is peppercorn, white sesame, hemp seed, shiso, yuzu, soba. And for example, um, there are, are chocolate makers who like to incorporate local ingredients that are grown in Japan, specifically on island, for example, in Okinawa, where they're you know growing some cacao there and Um, they'll use unique selections of cane sugar grown on different islands throughout that prefecture or Okinawan cinnamon or something. And I think that's really exciting. Mm, And lends the chocolate this very distinct local flavor. I think so. And I would say that in Japan, most chocolate makers are interested in the quality of the ingredients. So when we did a survey of craft chocolate makers from around the world, the most important factors for these chocolate makers when they're acquiring their ingredients are ethical sourcing. So, you know, making sure that the farmers are getting paid sufficiently under good working conditions. And then also the way that the cacao is cultivated. So this concern about sustainable production, as well as consumer health with pesticide residue, for example, and then the overall quality of the cacao beans. And that's kind of the bigger um, interest when it comes to Japanese craft chocolate makers is, is this concept of quality of ingredients. So the first thing I'd read that you'd written was actually all about a chocolate maker on the Ogasawara Islands. And I want to introduce that story here because it was all about a pioneering Japanese company that had actually managed to grow cocoa trees here in Japan for the first time outside of the usual tropical band of weather that cocoa trees are usually grown in. So could you tell us a little bit about that project? Oh, absolutely. So the Ogasawara chocolate story is there's a a group called Tokyo Cacao and they describe themselves as Japan's first soil to bar chocolate. So if we kind of reflect back on the term bean to bar. I think they're going even one step further. And (laughs) so typically the production chain for chocolate is this multinational um, project that passes through a lot of hands where the cacao bean producing country is often far away from the chocolate manufacturing and consuming country. And this is not the case with Tokyo Cacao. It's all within the jurisdiction of Tokyo. I mean, it's still quite far out there, though. (laughs) Maybe maybe, where where is Ogasawara? (laughs) Yeah, I know that you looked into visiting the farm over there. What I mean, what would that journey even look like? (laughs) Yeah, so the Ogasawara Islands are about a thousand kilometers south of Tokyo. And the only way to get there is a 24 hour ferry ride that currently leaves Tokyo about once a week. So it's not super easy to get to. (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's still technically part of Tokyo. It is. Yeah. The Ogasawara Islands are this archipelago of, I believe, over 30 subtropical and tropical islands. And most of them are uninhabited. So actually, the other name for Ogasawara Islands is Bonin. So today you would actually read it as Mujin, meaning without people. 
And mm, I believe the only two islands that are um, have humans <laughs> living on them is Chichijima and Hajima. And Hajima is the island that Tokyo cacao is growing their trees on. And how did they actually end up growing their cacao trees there? So the president of Tokyo Cacao, Hiratsuka san,、um, he visited Ghana almost 20 years ago and he saw these cacao trees, or、um, they would call it cocoa trees in Ghana. So for the first time, they, he saw these trees during his trip. And this makes a lot of sense because Ghana is actually a major producer of cocoa along with the、mm. Ivory Coast. So together, they're responsible for over 60% of global. Cocoa production. So, anyhow, Hiratsuka san was inspired to grow cacao in Japan and realized it had to be done on Hajima in this warmer climate. So, cacao trees are grown in this greenhouse environment, which helps to maintain adequate growing conditions, including temperature and humidity that they would need to have <laughs> outside of their typical growing zone. And apparently, this was this big challenge at first. The trees just kept dying. <laughs> and eventually, after lots of trial and error and taking research trips to Vietnam, they imported more seeds from Indonesia and then they were eventually able to figure it out. And they're now able to sell chocolate here that's not only been made in Japan, but made from cacao that's been grown in Japan. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and have you tried it? I haven't. You know, last time they released the chocolate, it was specifically to the department store and it was, it was sold out. <laughs> so one day I'll try it. So, maybe looking ahead a bit, what in particular excites you about Japan's craft chocolate scene? Oh, so many things. <laughs> in my opinion, the Japanese market is unique in that there's this very distinct flavor profile that occurs for Japanese consumers. And I think, in that sense, it, it can kind of steer some interesting industry developments. And we talked a little bit about Tokyo Cacao and how that's. Unique in that it's this production system that's occurring way outside the typical production zone. So, cacao trees are predominantly cultivated in tropical regions around the world, so near or above that 20 degrees north or south of the equator. But we're starting to see production in distinct locales outside of these traditional growing zones, including these subtropical regions like southern Taiwan, which is about 22 to 24 degrees north. So, For reference,、um, Sapporo is at 43 degrees north, and Tokyo、mm -hmm. proper is about 35 degrees north. In Japan, there's some production happening in Okinawa Prefecture, which is located around 26 degrees north, as well as、um, Hahajima Island. And that's also similarly 26 degrees north. I guess that's interesting because, in the sense of the cost of production, These systems are forced to be in this specialty market. They cannot just、mm. sell to this global commodity market, right? They, they, have to, they have to create a premium product. So, I guess in that sense, that innovation is happening for Japan. So, this may be getting a bit ahead of myself, but our last episode of the podcast, we were talking about climate change. And one of our guests, Eric Margolis, he was talking about the farmers in Japan who are already beginning to swap out crops for warmer varieties as the climate warms here. So, I was wondering whether you thought that, you know, in 50 years or maybe towards the end of this century, we might see that more and more of Japan. 
becomes suitable for growing cacao trees. Are you are you asking me to predict 50 years of climate change? I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, okay. So in terms of global warming, it's hard to say, right? Because there might be more extreme weather events for these island communities, which would for sure make it challenging to maintain the required infrastructure to grow cacao in these environments. So, I mean, maybe I wouldn't rule it out. I yeah, I mean, I think we when we look at the term even climate change, it it will get warmer, but it might also get cooler. So, you know, there's going to be more of that variation happening and that's um that will be a challenge. So, I shouldn't start planting cacao trees in Kyushu anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, soon. you should always start planting <laughs> cocoa. <laughs> Okay, on a shorter time horizon then, and to wrap up this conversation, how do you see the craft chocolate scene in Japan developing over the next five years or so? Well, what I like to think about is the craft chocolate industry in general is influential to the chocolate industry in general. So we're starting to see a lot of these bigger industrial chocolate systems become interested in these bean-to-bar or craft chocolate production systems. And even Meiji has come out with their bean-to-bar line of chocolates. And it's it's just really showing how it can influence these bigger entities that have the resources to make these really, really big changes in this global system. So I kind of see it as this, you know, <laughs> small sector of this industry that is listening to what consumers are interested in and, and they're interested in things like sustainability and ethics and you know food safety and and things like that and and that's kind of being translated up the food chain if you will to these to these bigger entities so i think in that sense um that's kind of where i see it going is is that just getting bigger and more more widely accepted in the market Well, Gina Cabby, thank you so very much. Thank you. This is so fun. That was Gina Cabby. Thanks so much to her for joining me. Thanks also to Cheko Bano from Dandelion Chocolate Japan for additional research on the topic. Are any of Japan's chocolates better than chocolate macadamias? I don't think so, and I'm keen to be proved wrong. Let me know. Reach out to me on Twitter at Japan Deep Dive or email me directly at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. That's all for this week. Until next time, Potsukaro-sama. Potsukaro-sama.